Well, good morning. How are you doing? Oh, great. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, I'm glad that you guys can make it on this winter day. Uh, and uh, if, if you're new, uh, man, I'm so thankful for you. So glad that you're here with us. Uh, got a couple of things for you before we dive into our time. Um, I actually don't want to spend a lot of time in this intro because we're going to be looking at a large section of Scripture this morning. We're going to find ourselves, if you got your Bibles with you, whether you got them uh, hard copy or you got something on, on your phone, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. So we're looking at a large chunk of scripture. While you're flipping there, a couple of things for you. One, if you're new, again, uh, thanks for hanging out. We have some connect cards on the chairs uh, for you. We'd love to hang out with you. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket. Uh, And in addition to that, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some on the rows as well. That is our gift to you. Um, And if you know someone that would benefit from getting a Bible, hook them up. Over the past three weeks, uh, and we finished this off last week, I just want to give you kind of a quick, bu- quick update. Over the past three weeks, we did something called the Grace Initiative. The Grace Initiative was something that was designed, it was a giving campaign designed to raise some money uh, so that this money would go back into our community groups so our community groups can then go back out into our city and our communities, uh, blessing our city, making disciples by blessing our city. Uh, The goal over those last three weeks, we since closed it last week, uh, the goal was to raise $1,000 so that that money would go into community groups. Uh, You guys, through your generosity and God's grace, we raised over $1,600 for the Grace Initiative. And so, man, thank you guys so much for that. That is that is y'all and your generosity. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this next season. Uh, those of you who are group leaders, you're going to get some updates in the next day or so. Uh, all that being said, let's dive into 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, if you're running late or you just got here, chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Part of the reason we're going to be looking at sar- such a, a, a large chunk of scripture uh, is because some of the themes that we're going to walk through this morning are going to come back in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 as Peter closes off his letter. In addition to that, I think when we read through this section of scripture, it kind of becomes this culmination of everything Peter has already walked us through, and I'll explain a little more as we get into it. But to begin our time, uh, just as a brief recap, over the past couple of months, as we have walked through 1 Peter, this sermon series titled uh, Exiles, as we've walked through it, we've encountered several transitions and several topics. For instance, at the beginning, we walked through uh, the work of God for us in Christ, uh, what he has done for us in Christ, what he is doing in us as a result of who God is and, and who we are. We walked through several weeks of really just honing in on our identity as a result of the work of Christ. The next transition that we looked at, or the next season of this letter that we looked at, was really the, the, the pursuit of holiness. And we parked there for a little bit because we wanted to walk through what holiness means, uh, and in addition to that, what our motivation for holiness is. We needed to park there for a little bit to have a firm understanding on that because of uh, a variety of understanding of what holiness may or may not mean. You can check out those sermons later on. Uh, And then over the past couple of weeks, we did one more transition where Peter 
as he prepped us for the pursuit of holiness, showed us what the pursuit of holiness looked like in a variety of social contexts. He showed us what it looked like to pursue holiness uh, as it applies to one another, us in the church, what it looks like to pursue holiness uh, in the community or in the culture or predominantly in a culture that does not know who Jesus is. Uh, He showed us what it looked like to pursue holiness when it comes to governing authorities or unjust suffering. Uh, And finally, what it looked like to pursue holiness in the covenant of marriage, which is what we looked at last week. This week, Peter is essentially bringing it all together, and he opens up by writing finally. Not that he is landing the plane in this letter, but that he is closing uh, the section of holiness as it pertains to the category of social settings or the social code, whatever you'd like to to place that with. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. One of the things that you're going to look at, or actually, actually I should say it this way, two of the things that we're going to look at that seem to be themes throughout this entire letter is, number one, all of those social contexts that we walked through and the ones that we will continue to walk through, Peter will continue to address us as exiles. Now, that's incredibly important. That's incredibly important because throughout the whole letter, Peter has been telling us that we're not to be on the fringes of society. We're, as Christians, we're not supposed to be on the fringes of society. We're not on the outside, but instead, we're actually going to walk through uh, culture. We're going to walk through the world. And as we walk through the world, we are walking as exiles on mission, which means you're going to look weird which means you're going to experience some suffering, which means a lot of things for you in terms of your character, your conduct, and your convictions. Throughout the whole letter, that's the reason we titled it this, this, this series. That's why we titled it Exiles. We're going to walk through where God has us as exiles. The second thing that we see that is a common thread throughout all of these themes is even as exiles, or because we are exiles, there is kind of a, a, an underlying truth to that. There is a meta narrative that you and I share, and that is that our life preaches a sermon about Jesus. Our life preaches a sermon about Jesus. And that is something that's going to continue on as we move forward. And so today, Peter is wrapping up holiness, as I mentioned earlier, but when it comes to the category of social context, and he gives, he's going to give us three reminders. He's going to give us three reminders about gospel-centered holiness. He's going to give us a reminder about gospel-centered mission and suffering. He's going to give us a reminder about gospel-centered hope. And because it's such a large section of Scripture, if you get lost, here's the big idea. Here's where I want you to to just kind of bind yourself in. The big idea is that holiness and mission and suffering are all rooted in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. Say that one more time. Holiness and mission and suffering are all rooted in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say it in a different way. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment. Uh, Just so that you know, we're going 8 through 22. We're going to break it up into three sections. Verses 8 through 12, 13 to 17, and then 18 to 22. So if you got your Bibles ready, let's dive in. Let me read and then I'll pray 
for our time. This is what Peter writes. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, which, excuse me, right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to to him. Let's pray. God, as we, uh, as we dive into your word, there's going to be a lot of things I think that we're going to walk through that are going to be kind of weighty. And so Holy Spirit, I pray for several things. Number one, I pray that you would give us mm, a sober mind so that we receive your word. And so that, we would, um, so that we would be convicted by your word. That we would actually internalize it and then apply it to our hands. God, I pray that you would bring us comfort in the midst of your word. Lord, I think when we walk through especially things like suffering and we look at things that are going on in our world, it's easy to take our attention off of what we have or it's easy to feel like what we are going through is unimportant, but it is. While there may not be this grand persecution, there are broken relationships. There are broken hearts. There are lives that are hurting and aching. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for comfort in this time, but I pray for conviction as well. I pray that the words of your message, the words from, from your word, would be taken from ears to hearts. That those who know you, Jesus, would come to know you better, and that those who don't know you would repent and come to know you. 
God, we love you and we thank you for this time of worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. You guys ready? All right, here we go. So the first thing that we're going to be looking at is verses 8 through 12. What I want to do, because this is such a large section of Scripture, what I want to do is narrow it down to specific audiences. And so when we're looking at verses 8 through 12, I want to narrow it down specifically because I think this is who Peter is talking to or he's talking about. I want to narrow it down specifically to the church. As I mentioned earlier, as the apostle is bringing it all together, he's pulling from themes that we have already walked through. And so see uh, verses 8 through 22 as a giant summary of what he's already talked about. And so verses 8 through 12 are going to apply to you and I as the church. And so here's what I want you to know. I have like these small main ideas for each section. And then at the end of our time, I want to bring it all together. At the very least, I'm going to do my best to bring it all together. Here's what I want you to know, that uh, holiness, that's what we're going to be talking about in this section. Holiness is rooted in the work of God in the redeemed. Holiness is rooted in the work of God in the redeemed. In other words, holiness for the Christian has to deal not only with practical application, but primarily as a result of who they are in Christ. Holiness begins with the work of God for you and in you. That's where it starts. And so in this section, in verses 8 through 12, we're going to split it up into, in very complicated fashion, we're going to split it up into another two sections of Christian character and Christian conduct. Because that's essentially what the apostle is drawing us to. And so I want you to know that holiness is rooted in the work of God in the redeemed. That is, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, holiness first comes as a result of what he has done for you and who he says you are. Afterward, there's the practical stuff. So that's why we're going to dive into some character qualities. These are qualities that should be pouring out from us. These are qualities that we should be growing in, qualities that we are maturing in, qualities that we have as a result of what God has done. Before we get into the practical, before we get into this is how you should do it, and this is why you should do it, and here are 10 points on how to do it. Before we get into all of that, we must remember who God says we are, and what kind of qualities he has given us through his Holy Spirit. And Peter doesn't waste any time. He gives us five character qualities. The first one is unity of mind. Unity of mind. Now remember, this is for you. This is for us, the church, right? So when it comes to unity of mind, here's, here's the one thing that I'm always reminded of, that unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. In other words, as a church family and as a large church, if we look at the bigger scale, differences are going to exist. Let's just accept that, and that's a reality, and that's okay. Differences are going to exist. Some of those differences are going to be preferential. Some of those differences might even be convictional. But what does matter is what we stand firm on together, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we stand firm on. We stand firm on the gospel that God, in his love and grace, saves sinners. 
As a result, that is not just a work of convenience or that is not a really cool hashtag so that you can spread influence on your social media account. It is transformative. The gospel that God in His grace saves sinners like you and me is not just informational, it is transformative. It changes everything for you and I. The next thing that Peter says is that we are to have sympathy, and we're going to, have, or we're going to see this word later on. And he says we ought to have sympathy. And so what, is, what does sympathy mean? Sympathy means having the same emotions or feelings that another person has so that we would better understand that person or one another and respond appropriately in those times. Now, some of you will hear sympathy and you're like, that is certainly not me. I'm not sympathetic. Like, I'm really bad at that. I would side with you because this is something I struggle with. But the best way that I've known to actually deal with developing sympathy is one, by beginning to submit that to the Lord and praying for it. And number two, asking questions. I can think of a few occasions where my wife and I have had dinner with other people or even when my wife and I have had conversations and I see her choking up or I see her becoming emotional and I become a student. And that's not exactly the best context to become a student in, but I just don't, like the way I'm wired, I don't always know how to respond appropriately. But I know in that moment, I'm going to ask her questions. They may come across as, as cold, and I'm not trying to be cold. You could att- my wife could attest to this. I'm not trying to be cold. I'm trying to better understand so that I can respond appropriately. There have been moments, whether it's just been our season or my sin, that has led her to tears, and I'll ask something like, why do you cry? And I'm not asking in the sense of stop crying. I'm asking because I don't understand. And I think some of you may even relate to some of that. You'd be like, oh yeah, I would ask those questions. Right. My motivation behind that is because I really do want to know what she's feeling so that I can better understand and respond appropriately. What I need to work on is not only being sympathetic, but asking that question in a better setting. Right? I'm not, I shouldn't ask that because sometimes I've asked that when we're at dinner at a restaurant and people think like I'm breaking up with her. That's not, that's, that's not good right? So that's, that's certainly a failure on my part. But the intention behind it is that I, I genuinely do want to learn what she's feeling. I genuinely do want to learn about other people's feelings because I'm not necessarily wired to be so emotional or as emotional. And so sometimes my questions come across like, he doesn't care. Why? I'm crying. Why wouldn't you see that I'm feeling a certain way? And the answer is because I, I don't know. And so, so I, I, tend to, I tend to ask, and I need to work on how. Nevertheless, if this is something that you struggle with, if you're like, man, man, developing sympathy is just one of the hardest things. Number one, I would, I would submit that before the Lord and pray that God gives you a heart to be sympathetic. I have seen some of the roughest, most manly men, right, go from being so rough around the edges to being some of the most pastoral and shepherding men in their family and to their friends. And it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like they addressed it on a Monday and Tuesday they got it. This is something that has been developed over the course of many years. And so so pray for that. Pray that God would soften your heart. Pray that you would be placed in those circumstances so that you would begin to work on it. 
so we are all to demonstrate sympathy. The third thing is that we are to demonstrate brotherly love. We've talked a lot about this. In fact, when it came to the pursuit of holiness as it applies to you and I as the church, we spent a great deal of time on this. And so I really just want to say one thing about brotherly love or, or what it means for us to be a church family, a spiritual family. And, and I want to say one thing, and that is that family is messy and family is hard and family is very painful sometimes. Jesus never said that it was going to be easy. In fact, there is nothing but pain that he underwent on the cross so that we would become family. It is paid, that that dynamic of developing family uh, relationships, it's going to be painful, and it's awkward, and it's messy, and it's hard, and I know sometimes, myself included, we all just want it to be kind of black and white, and we want to understand certain things, and we don't like muddy waters, but that's just not how it works all of the time. That's just not how it always works. It's going to be muddy sometimes, and the only way to develop some clear water is by stepping into the mud. And I think we don't want to step into the mud because we just genuinely don't want to be around one another sometimes, or at times we don't want to necessarily jump into that mud to see what's going on and develop some clarity. We don't want to do that, and so rather than fighting for those family dynamics, rather than fighting through that discomfort and pain and messiness and muddy waters, we will throw words like we are brothers in Christ, we are sisters in Christ, and rather than using those words as terms of endearment, we use those words as terms of distance. This is the Apostle John in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Life, excuse me, uh, family dynamics is messy, it's hard, it's weird, it's awkward, and yet this is what God has, or better yet, God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has reconciled us to one another. So it's going to be messy, and it's going to be painful, And the question isn't how far can I get away until that's resolved. The question is what do I need to do to best engage where we are at? So that's number one, or excuse me, that's number three. That's brotherly love. The next one is a tender heart. Peter says that we are to have a tender heart for one another. A tender heart can be best described as compassion. That that the, the words tender heart is really one word in the original language. And the original language defines it as something that comes from the depths of your being. Like you are so compassionate for one another. It, it, it stems from, from uh, the bottom of, of, of our stomachs of who we are. Like we cannot help but be compassionate to one another. And then when you look at the word compassion, it's actually comprised of, of two words. And that is to suffer with. That is to suffer with one another. Additionally, compassion, if you don't know, compassion is, is always going to come at an inconvenient time. I think that's what it means to suffer with one another. And I think when we think about suffering with one another, we might think of these uh, uh, big examples of persecution or the church being persecuted. And that certainly does apply to that, suffering alongside of one another in difficult seasons. But it also means suffering with one another in the midst of a rough season when 
something's gone wrong. That we are to demonstrate compassion to one another. And the last one is to have a humble mind. To have a humble mind. I think, I think when we're looking at humility, the best way to define it would actually be to quote C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'll say it one more time. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That was from C.S. Lewis. Here's one of the things that I notice when it comes to humility, and I'm guilty of this primarily. Oftentimes, when it comes to humility, or better yet, let me, let me back up a little bit. Let me say it this way. The pursuit of humility, as defined by Peter in chapter 5, is that we cast our anxieties onto the Lord. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, cast your anxieties onto the Lord as you pursue humility. The word cast literally means to throw your anxieties onto the Lord. Not that you would absorb them because you're strong enough to do it and you just have a good sense of how to do it, but that you're actually casting your anxieties onto the Lord, that you're throwing your anxieties onto the Lord. Here's the problem. The problem is, I think, we think that we are humble uh, by just doing good things, good godly things. That rather than pursuing humility, rather than thinking of ourselves less, rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus, we fix our eyes on church stuff. It could be ministry, it could be serving one another, and all of those things are really, really good. Maybe you serve on Sunday morning, maybe you lead a group, maybe uh, man, you disciple some, whatever. All those things are really, really good. And you would say, I do really good things, therefore I am humble. And, and I think we've missed it. I think we missed it at that point. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers of, of us in the church or as the church, that we would say we are pursuing humility because we do good stuff. We are pursuing humility because I started a Bible study. We are, doing, uh, uh, we are pursuing humility because I discipled one or two individuals. We are, doing, uh, we are pursuing humility because I have a cross around my neck. We are pursuing humility because I've memorized a couple of Bible passages. And I think the idea to pursue humility is to deny ourselves and think of ourselves less. I think we often miss it. I think we often miss it when it comes to having a humble mind. And so these are five character qualities that should pour out of us as a result of, of who we are. These are qualities that we are going to grow in and mature, that we're actually committed to growing in these qualities. I think when we see a list, we might look at, for example, a list of five things and we'll say, I'm good at that one. I might be good at that one. I stink at that. I probably won't work on that one as much, right? No, we are actually committed to all of these. Or if it's not so much, I'm not going to work on that. It's like, well, all these others kind of compensate for my lack of sympathy, so I think I'm okay. No, we are actually committed to universal holiness in the sense that we're not just going to dive into this one thing. We're actually growing in each and every one of these areas. That's part of who we are. And so the question I have for you when it comes to Christian character is where are you struggling? Where are you struggling? 
Now, let me talk to you very briefly about struggle. It's not struggle if you're giving in. It's not struggle if you're giving in. What is it that you're actually doing about it? What does repentance genuinely look like in your life? Often one of the questions tends to be, how do I find joy in Christ? I believe that we find joy in Christ through repentance. What is it that you're struggling with? The second section of this section is Christian conduct. So Peter gives us a list of five things, and then he looks at our Christian conduct. He goes on to say, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And then he quotes Psalm 34. Because we're looking at such a large section of Scripture, I want to address just two things in this before moving on. That when it comes to Christian conduct, we're looking at two things. We're looking at blessing and we're looking at obedience. Those are the two things that we're looking at. When it comes to conduct, we're looking at blessing and we're looking at obedience. In other words, we do not return revile. And if you're unsure about what revile is, that's, that's insult, that's harsh language, that is sinful behavior. We don't return revile with revile. Instead, we return revile with blessing. We return revile with blessing. And Peter actually uh, demonstrated or, or taught us what that looked like through the example of Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 23. He wrote, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself on him who judges justly. I think part of the reason Peter places such an emphasis on speech, even as he quotes Psalm 34, is because what you and I tend to want to do when we are experiencing unjust suffering or when someone reviles or slanders or says something about us, particularly in the church, the first thing that we want to do is come back at them with something even harder. That rather than reflecting and demonstrating the person and work of Christ in our lives and how he is transforming us, what we rather do is actually get louder. Maybe even defend our position. Maybe even use the Bible against them so that they would feel utter guilt and so that you would walk away clean or think that you're walking away clean. How often has that applied to you? How often has that applied to you over the past week? Maybe you had one of those arguments, spouses. Maybe you had some of those arguments, right? And, and in those arguments, they, maybe there's one sinned against the other and, uh, and, and you didn't necessarily return with blessing. And blessing could generally mean, uh, hey, uh, I actually want to talk about that. Uh, let's, let's sit down and, and work through these things. Maybe it was things like, well, you know what? I'm supposed to submit to the Lord, but not to you. You know what I mean? Like you throw things kind of out of context, right? <laughs> you throw things out of context so that, so, that, uh, so that you feel justified in your action, right? I think one of the things that uh, uh, I was convicted of this week, we were, we were studying the Bible at staff and, and uh, we're, we're in Colossians. And in Colossians 2.14, uh, Paul says, he, he gives this really beautiful picture of the gospel. He goes on to say that Jesus erased our debt, and nailed it to the cross, or the obligation of our debt, and nailed it to the cross. And we were just thinking about, like, man, how does that apply to us? Isn't that wonderful news? And I, I told the guys, I was like, yeah, that is wonderful news, but man, that makes me feel so convicted because I actually collect debt. I, I don't erase it like Jesus does. How often have you, this week or even this morning, have been collecting debt? Right? 
Peter, Peter says that we bless so that we would obtain a blessing. Now, does that mean you're going to receive some sort of material gift? Uh, I don't know. Probably not, right? But if we look at him quoting Psalm 34, I think what it does apply, uh, I think how it does apply to us is the blessing that you and I receive is that God hears our prayers. If we look at verse 7 from last week and how he spoke to men here, he kind of generalizes it, even puts us all in the same category. That man, if we are returning revile with revile and evil with evil, our prayers are going to be hindered because that's a natural condition of our hearts. A friend of mine says it one way where he said there's you, he says there's you and then there's God and then there's a pipeline in between. And what you want in that pipeline is you want it to be nice and clean and you want that air to flow. The more we repay evil for evil, the more we revile with revile, that pipeline is going to get debris in there. And as it gets debris, what tends to happen? It tends to get clogged up. I think the blessing that we are ultimately to obtain is that God listens to our prayers. The second thing that, he's, uh, that Peter says by quoting Psalm uh, 34 is that we obey. Here's, here's the thing that I want you just to kind of take on from obedience. And, and obedience, it does lead to blessing. Obedience does lead to blessing. I don't know what that blessing is going to be. It might not be today. I don't know. Is that really the point? Obedience leads to blessing, and obedience demonstrates faith. But I want you to know that. Obedience demonstrates faith. I think sometimes we could look at that and be like, yeah, right, obedience demonstrates faith. I'm just going to show all these good things, right? And I'm good to go. I think that's where those character qualities come back in. Because those character qualities are and should um, convict our hearts as to why we're being obedient, why we are doing this. Well, it's because of the pursuit of holiness. Well, the pursuit of holiness is what? It's rooted in the work of God. We are to have that humble mind. So obedience leads to blessing, and obedience demonstrates faith. Another way of saying it, your life preaches a sermon. And that sermon isn't just being preached when you're out in public. That sermon is being preached at home. Whether you're married or single, don't even insert stuff. All right? Whether you're married or single, you're preaching a sermon. Let's look at verses 13 to 17. This is, this is suffering well while on mission. And so we looked at this first section of uh, gospel-centered holiness. Great. We looked, at our con- or, excuse me, we looked at our character. We looked at our conduct. Now let's look at our conviction. Let's look at our conviction while we're out in the world, Right? And so holiness compels us to mission. Here's, here's what, uh, it's just a reality. You are, if you belong to Jesus, you are a missionary. Whether you like it or not, you are a missionary. It is not so much, am I a missionary? No, that's not necessarily the question. The question is, are you a good one or are you a bad one? Right? You are a missionary. You have been sent to where you are. That is not a coincidence. God calls us to be a royal priesthood so that we would proclaim his gospel. Right? We looked at that over the past couple of weeks. So then, what happens when the culture shuts you out? What happens when you lose your voice? What do you do? Do you get louder on Facebook? 
maybe posting things in all caps, reposting uh, certain posts from other people or organizations. You get loud on Twitter. What do you do? Do you get just so frustrated that you just turn and, and remind people that hell is real and hell is hot and forever is a long time? What do you do? What happens when it seems like the gospel is losing? What happens when it looks like the church is failing? Peter in this section is going to give us three things. He's going to give us three things to do in a culture that doesn't necessarily know Jesus. But in addition to that, he gives us these things so that we know what to do in a culture that is rooted in self-therapy. Because this also applies to the church. Sure, we're going to look like we're going to look at the context that we find ourselves in: school, business, whatever your job is, you know, home. We're going to look at all of those things and what it looks like to be a missionary in those settings. Sure, we're going to look at all that. But this should also be a gut check to us in terms of how we view the significance, density, and depth of the gospel. Oftentimes, the church, that is us, has only reduced, or excuse me, has reduced the church to only Sundays. We have only reduced it to Sundays. And in addition to that, when we do come, or when we are here, if we are here, we treat Sundays like it's therapeutic. What can I get out of this? What's good for me? I'm going to spit the bones, chew the meat. And then I'm going to go do my own thing. That's called therapy, not godliness. There's a difference. The gospel is about Jesus saving sinners like you and I, not coming up with pithy therapeutic statements so that you would have some positivity on Monday. The gospel is an offense. Think about it. In fact, for homework, right? Go home. Preach the gospel in your mirror. See how you know it. See how well you know it, right? Oftentimes, the nerdiest dudes, right, the ones who read all the books, you ask them, hey, tell me what the gospel is. Uh, it's awesome. Anyway, right? The gospel is an offense. So here we go. Peter, in these three things, nails it down really to one word. So it's like, okay, yeah, so what do we do? Peter says, go. Go. The first thing I want us to look at is that Peter calls us to be zealous in doing good. He opens up this section by saying, Now who is there to harm if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Be zealous in doing good. Here's, here's what that means. And again, all this is practical, so I hope, I hope this is helping. Wherever you are, be the best at it. Wherever you are, be the best at it. That means if you're a parent, mom and dad, be the best mom and dad you can be. Invest time into your children. Pursue your children. Disciple your children. If you are a brother, a sister, a sibling, son, daughter, Be the best son and daughter you can be. Be the best sibling that you can be. Especially the older ones. The best way to lead the younger ones is by serving them. If you are a business owner, be the best business owner you can be. Love your employees. Bless your employees. 
Demonstrate grace to your employees. Pray with your employees. If you are a student, be the best student you can be. Honor your teachers. Doesn't mean you're always going to agree with them, but honor your teachers or your professors. Whatever it is you're going to be, be the best at it. If you are a teacher or an educator, be the best teacher and educator you can be. Pour into your students, invest into your students, love your students. This week, uh, to give you kind of a pause, this week uh, I had the, the privilege of leading our student ministry, and I loved it. It was really cool. Those kids are sharp. And as we were going around the table just hanging out and talking, one of the, th- one of the questions I asked them is I was just, I was genuinely curious. I asked, uh, so what's the best part about being in your grade level? And for lack of a better word, what's the crappiest part about being in your grade level? And one of them, one of the girls who's in junior high said something very profound, and I loved it. Uh, she goes on to say, the best thing about being in my grade level is that uh, I get to help other students who are in the lower grade levels. I get to help them, and it's pretty cool being on the top. Sure, right? It was the second part that I really loved. She goes on to say, I think what I would love, the crappiest thing about being in my grade grade level is that teachers are constantly talking to us about the future and college, and I love that, and I know why they do it, and I know why they want to do it. Like, I get all of that. Sometimes I wish they would just teach us about today. And I loved that statement. That's not a jab at teachers, but I loved that statement because I think oftentimes, oftentimes when it comes to being the best, and here's the thing, I drop the ball here constantly, if not daily, when it comes to being a parent, right? My son, who is, who is 14 or about to be 14, I'm constantly thinking like, what's he going to be like at 24? What's he going to be like at 34? He needs to know how to budget right now. Like all of these things like are coming to my mind. And I think oftentimes I forget like, whoa, he's, he's 13 right now. Like today at 13, I'm never going to get this day with him again. This, whatever today is, Sunday, the March, whatever, like I'm never going to get this day with him again. And I think that was just a profound statement made by one of our junior high students. Like, they are coming and saying, I understand that we are to prepare for the future. I understand that we are to look ahead. I just wish they'd spend time with us in the here and now. And that was such a profound statement. And so if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're an educator, be zealous by doing good, and by doing good, Be the best at whatever it is you are, because where you are, you have been sent. It is not a coincidence. Please stop trying to negotiate it. The second thing that Peter says is to honor Christ. It's to honor Christ. Here's what honoring Christ means. Or actually, let me, let me read that section briefly. He goes on to say, honor, uh, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's what Peter's telling us. He's saying the way you're going to honor Christ is by recognizing him as Lord. 
not the authorities, not the institution, not other people. You're going to honor Christ by recognizing, acknowledging that He is Lord. So stand firm in your convictions. Demonstrate godly conduct even when, not if, even when you look weird. Why? Because you're in exile. You are in exile. We are not called to walk around the world on the fringes. We are called to walk through the world on mission. Demonstrate godly conduct. Acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is Lord. And when the time comes, when the time comes, speak. Speak. But speak with gentleness and respect. You're not always going to have the answers. Sometimes it's even going to be a little intimidating. But speak, nevertheless, the excellencies of Christ. You and I have been called to be faithful, not entertainers. We have been called to be faithful. Mission requires evangelism. Evangelism is the good news declared, which means there are words that are coming out. When we honor Christ in spite of fear or slander because those things are coming, we demonstrate that our faith is unshakable. So what does this look like for you in your context where you are? Parents, what does this look like for you at home? Teachers, educators, what does this look like for you in the classroom? What does this look like for you in the business setting? What does this look like for you uh, at school, on campus? What does this look like for you? Man, I just don't want to say anything about Jesus because it's going to offend them. Yes, the gospel is an offense. The gospel teaches us that we are dead in our sin. That it is God who makes us alive in Christ That as a result of who we are outside of God, we are actually rebelling and running away from God. Doing our own thing, exercising our free will, doing whatever it is we want to do that is in direct contrast to what God has called us to. And in His love, mercy, and grace, He rescues us. He saves sinners like you and me. Yes, the gospel is an offense. And you are here because someone shared the gospel with you. Evangelism requires declaration. Number three, suffer well. Very brief on this. Very, very brief. Because we looked at this last week, we're going to look at this in chapter four. Here's what I would say in terms of suffering. This is what Peter writes For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I guess kind of a quick summary from like two weeks ago. Number one, you're going to suffer. Number two, when you suffer, suffer like Jesus. When you suffer, suffer like Jesus. See, I think the reason the American church, which includes us, we don't suffer well is because we actually love our comfort more than our Savior. See, when we look at suffering, it's an inconvenience. It's a disruption to our life. Because really, even though we wouldn't say it, we do have some self-therapeutic consumeristic beliefs. And so when suffering comes along, it's a disruption. 
It's an inconvenience. And so I think the reason you and I tend to not suffer well is because we love our comfort more than we actually love our Savior, which is the same reason as to why we don't talk about Jesus, because we just don't love him as much as we say we do. But on Sundays, it's all game. I think that's why we do a poor job at suffering well. But that does not change what Scripture teaches us about suffering. That we will suffer, but when you suffer, suffer like Jesus. We receive hope in holiness and suffering through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We looked at what is it? Character and conduct, and we looked at conviction. Holiness and mission and suffering, they're not at odds with one another. In fact, what brings them all together is hope in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That is where you and I can receive hope in the midst of suffering when you look weird and everybody's making fun of you, in the midst of trying to grow in godliness. We find hope in the finished work of Jesus. Let's look at verses 18 through 22. I want to actually reread this. I want to preface verses 18 through 22. I think this might be where we spend the most time. The reason I say that, and we'll get to this in just a moment, is because verse 19 is regarded as uh, one of, if not the most difficult passage to, or verse, to interpret in the New Testament. And if you're like, I don't know if it's that bad, there are over 180 interpretations and nuances, so wherever you and I stand are probably wrong. So when it comes to verse 19, we'll take it slow. But here we go, verses 18 through 22. This is what Peter writes. For Christ also suffered. I want you to underline that word for. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit excuse me, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. I actually want to pause there for a minute. When Peter writes at the beginning where he says, for Christ suffered once for sins, it's pretty much him coming to a conclusion of what he's just told us. He's talked to us about character and conduct, and he's talked to us about conviction in the midst of suffering. And when you begin to ask the question, well, why? Why must we pursue conviction and conduct and character? Peter brings it down by using the word for, which is another way of saying because. So he says, because Christ also suffered. You and I can suffer well by meditating on Jesus. Now, this is important because as we're about to get a little nerdy on this, right, and we might geek out for a minute, here's what's important about these verses. And I'm going to repeat this throughout our time. Here's what's important. What's important about these verses is that our hope in holiness and mission and suffering is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. That is, for lack of a better way of putting it, the main idea of 18 and 22. That the resurrection of Jesus changes everything for the believer. It is not a means of influence. It is not a means of convenience, but it is a means of transformation and conviction. It changes everything for the believer. So 
With that being said, let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 is a wonderful, beautiful summary of the gospel. And Peter writes five things, actually four things, with the fifth one being in verse 22. He writes that Jesus suffered once for sins. That's incredibly important because what we see in the Old Testament is we see the high priest sacrificing animals on the daily for their sins and for the sins of the people so that they might step into the presence of God. Here we see Jesus, uh, uh, we see God entering into human history through Jesus or as the man Jesus Christ and going to the cross and suffering once for sin. He is the blameless, sinless, perfect, final sacrifice. And in addition to that, what is so significant, both for our comfort and our conviction, but also theologically, is that he had to be both fully man and fully, uh, fully God. He had to be fully human because he is going to be the one who sympathizes with us, right? We read that in Hebrews, and we just talked about that one word a while ago, that he is able to sympathize when you, with you and I. But he also had to be fully God because it was only God who can take on the full wrath of God. Jesus suffered once for sins. Number two, the righteous for the unrighteous. That when it comes to Jesus suffering once for sins, that tells us a lot. That tells us that he is sinless. He's not suffering for his sins. He is suffering for the sins of sinners. And in addition to that, he is substituting. He is dying in our place. The death that you and I deserve for our transgression against God, he took on voluntarily. He is our substitute dying in our place so that we might have life. And then he goes on to say that he might bring us to God. That is, on the cross, Jesus accomplishes redemption. The reformer Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. He says that on the cross, Jesus pays or takes on, absorbs our sin, and then gives us his righteousness. Another way of saying that is he took on all of our debt and gave us his credit so that, so that the righteousness that Christians have is not a righteousness that you and I obtain by merit or how many Bible verses you've memorized. The righteousness that you and I carry is because of the finished work on the cross by Jesus, the sinless Savior. That is redemption accomplished. Number four, that Jesus died and resurrected. We're going to touch on this a little bit more in just a minute. He goes on to say, being put to death, that is that God died in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Here's the one thing I want you to know about this before we go back to verse 19. That Jesus died and resurrected. Why this is so important and incredible is because there is no place where his victory is untouched. There is no place where the victory of Christ's resurrection goes untouched. There is no human force. There is no spiritual force that goes untapped by his victory. 
And then when you go to verse 22, Peter goes on to say, uh, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is alive. Jesus is well. Jesus is on the throne. And he is Lord over all. That is who Jesus is. So now we go back up to verse 19. All right? I'll read it one more time. I'm going to take a coffee break, and then, uh, and then we'll dive in. He goes on to say, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. That is the end of verse 18 going into verse 19, again, regarded as one of, if not the most difficult uh, verses of the New Testament. I'm going to try and interpret it. Well, not really, but here we go. Here are the questions that come as a result of that verse. And some of you might be like, yes, tell me more, right? Some of you may just be like, that's cool, man, right? Um, Here's here's again what I would say before I dive into this. We're going to get geeky because I do want to talk about this just as much as I want to talk about baptism, These two things do not take away from the significance that the point of this passage is the resurrection of Christ changing everything for the life of the believer. That is the main idea. Don't miss it. Okay, here we go. Verse 19. The questions that come with verse 19 are, who are the spirits? Where is this prison? Is this the verse that talks about Jesus descending into hell? Maybe some of you might have heard of that. Some of you may come from a Roman Catholic background. Maybe you've read the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, at some point, it says that he descended into hell. Is that the original translation? Who wrote the Apostles' Creed? Was it the Apostles? Where did this come from? All of these wonderful questions come as a result of some of it, verse 19. Okay? Here's the question that I'm going to walk us through. Not answer, but walk us through. The question is, who did Jesus proclaim victory to? As I told you, 180 different interpretations and nuances. And I find great comfort in that because even some of the most brainiacs of brainiacs have said, this is the most confusing passage ever. Martin Luther, who's really cool, was like, I don't get it. And I love that. That's some honesty, right? So when it comes to proclaiming the victory, or excuse me, proclaiming victory too, here are some of the positions, here are some of the positions that people have uh, taken over the last many a year, okay? First one is, uh, actually these first two play in the context of what uh, the rest of the passage say. So here's what he's saying, that, that Jesus proclaimed victory to people in the Old Testament who did not believe. When he says that he proclaimed victory to all those, uh, I already lost it. When he proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison, the spirits in prison are the people from the Old Testament who did not believe. And so he goes and he preaches victory. I did it. I told you. Victorious. This is also, these are oversimplifications. If you would like to learn more about this, I'd love for you to take me out. And, and I'll, I'll, I'd love to walk through this. Right? All right, here we go. So number one is that, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits from the Old Testament who formally did not obey. In addition to that, if you read the rest of the context, he goes on to say, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
so that God or Jesus preached to the Old Testament, the people from the Old Testament who did not believe. That's one position. The other one is very similar that he is actually proclaiming victory through Noah to the Old Testament saints, those who did believe. The next one is also a very common one, more recent, that the spirits whom Jesus visited, the prison whom he visited, were the fallen angels from Genesis 6, that he went and proclaimed to them, I told you I'd do it. The next one, a position kind of simplistic in nature, goes on to say, he actually didn't descend anywhere. When we read the word went in the original language, it does not imply or define descent. Uh, And when it comes to prison, the word prison is not the kind of hell that you and I think of because there are actually four different words for hell in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. With that being said, the cross was everything that on the cross he experienced hellish anguish. That's kind of it. I know it doesn't seem very dramatic. That's kind of it. The next one is, the last one, and again, I I don't know all of them, but here's one of the last ones, one of the more common ones, that Jesus did in fact descend to hell for two reasons. Number one, as he descended to hell, or when he descended to hell, he descended so that he would uh, like experience the full or have the full experience of hell, suffer even more for our sins. I don't think that's biblical. In fact, I know that's not biblical because he said it is finished on the cross. Anyway, and so he says that he literally descended into hell And once in hell, he gave those spirits that were there, he gave those spirits a second chance. He's like, all right, I'm telling you, this is the last one. Right? But we don't necessarily see that. Anyway, whatever. That's one of the other positions. Again, you want to talk more about that? I'd love to tack. It's awesome. But that does not take away from the main idea. The main idea is that the victory of Christ in the resurrection is not limited. It is not limited. At the end of the day, even when you look at 1 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to describe that man. When Jesus resurrected, he conquered sin, Satan, death, hell, the grave. He conquered it so that we might have life, so that we would be redeemed. That is the main idea of this passage. Don't get lost in the nuances. It's fun, it's nerdy, and it's cool, and I'd love to talk about it, but don't get lost in the nuance that his resurrection, the power and truth and grace of his resurrection does not go untapped anywhere. It doesn't have limit That's ultimately what we're getting at. The next thing is baptism. I'll read from the end of verse 19. He goes on, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Real quick, why is he talking about Noah? It seems very, very random. To the people Peter is writing to, Noah was like a heroic figure. So they are well aware of who Noah is. Moving on, he goes on to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, what he just talked about, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the question here is, is baptism salvific? 
right? That's the question that's ultimately many people peg from this section. Is baptism salvific? In other words, uh, man, in order to experience full justification, we must be baptized. Check it. Let's read the rest of it. The water in the flood. Let's go back to what he just talked about when it comes to Noah. The water in the flood was both judgment and salvation. He goes on to say, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The water in the flood was judgment to those who did not repent or believe, but it was also salvation for those that were saved, those eight. Water was both judgment or the instrument of judgment and salvation. Here's what Peter is saying when you bring it all together. That just like the water in the flood was for both judgment and salvation, the water in baptism represents judgment and salvation. Think about it. When we have baptisms, we say you're now baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the idea behind that is that you are dead to sin, right? That is judgment, and that there is life, there is resurrection. That is salvation. Go to uh, Romans chapter 6. This is verse 3. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's the thing. The mechanical act, like the actual thing of baptism, the mechanical act of baptism means nothing if it is not united with faith in Christ alone. Baptism isn't so much about the external act, but the internal work of the heart. What connects us to the work of Christ? Faith expressed in baptism. Look at what he says toward the end. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. <clears throat> Is baptism a command slash ordinance? Yes. Baptism is a command. It is an ordinance left by Christ to the church. We do not separate faith from baptism. It is an ordinance. It is a sacrament. It is a command. Is baptism necessary in the sense that we're going to complete our salvation? Not necessarily. Why? Let's look at the thief on the cross. What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hey, good job, you repented. As soon as I get down, we're going to get a horse trough, we're going to dunk you, and then you'll be good to go. Right? He didn't say that. So I would minimalize it, though that's probably not the best word. I would minimalize it to this, that you, if you are alive, <laughs> if you're alive and a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. It's kind of simple, right? <laughs> if you are alive and a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. We do not separate faith 
from baptism. And it's not so much that it's meant to like embarrass anyone. It is an internal work of the heart. It is that God has brought you to life spiritually. That's how all of this connects. Think about it. If the resurrection changes everything, baptism connects us to the work of Christ because we have been made new. The life that we used to live, we no longer live. Instead, we live by faith in the Son of God who died for us on our behalf. It changes everything. And so for the believer, hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. Redemption has been accomplished. You are united and clothed with Christ. You have been reconciled to one another. And this directly impacts and affects your character, your conduct, and your conviction. All of those things stem from the finished work of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you can come to know Jesus because he offers hope. Not wishful thinking, but hope. And in hope, there is transformation. And transformation begins with repentance. Transformation begins with repentance. Church, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for, uh, man, this time of worship in your word. Your word clearly has, uh, man, some very explicit things, and then there are some nuances that might trip us out. But when we compare those sections and areas to the rest of your word, we are comforted by your clarity and consistency elsewhere. God, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to suffering while on mission, God, my simple prayer is that we would root ourselves in the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. That it's not just a thing or an act of convenience, but it is actually something that sets the tone and transforms us that it brings hope of redemption. God, may we be a church, may we be individuals that are rooted in the gospel. May we be discipled by you, Holy Spirit, in your word, not the culture. May we disciple one another through your word and work. And may we honor you with our conduct. And when you give us the green light, may we speak with gentleness and respect. God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, this is, this is where we give you our, our stuff. This is, this is an act of transformation, of you doing a work in us of you maturing us in holiness, of you compelling us out into mission because we have hope 
through the resurrection that more people will come to know Jesus. May we be faithful to that call. May we embrace that call. And may we proclaim loudly your excellencies. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.